Uh, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I'd like to read to you from Ephesians. Ephesians, uh, we're actually going to read two prayers that Paul prays. And, uh, you know, these were prayed for the Ephesian believers uh, 2,000 years ago or so. And yet, because we find them in the Word of God, I believe God wants to answer these prayers in our lives here this morning. And my prayer is that uh, what we're reading here as prayers would be our experience today. You might be here and uh, you've been a Christian many years. I pray it would be your experience. You may be here and as yet you have not come to know Jesus or committed your life to Jesus. I pray this morning that even as we read these prayers, you might encounter Jesus. So Ephesians 1 verse 15, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all authority, all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The second prayer is just a little further on, Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever amen and i pray amen over my life i want to experience more of that and my prayer is that you would too and so paul is imprisoned when he writes this letter most probably in rome under house arrest and he is awaiting trial for his life in the highest court in the roman empire There's nothing like the possibility of imminent death to focus the mind on what is truly important. He is writing to the believers in the great city, great metropolitan city of Ephesus. And that was a kind of a a dangerous place to live at that time as a Christian. And uh, to pledge allegiance to King Jesus was a dangerous thing 
to do. And it's interesting because when Paul prays for these believers, he doesn't pray for many of the things that we would probably pray for if we were praying for people in that same situation. No mention of safety or protection or a change of circumstances. Of course, nothing wrong with praying for those things. And uh, he may well have prayed for that at other times. But what Paul is praying for is what he considers to be the most important thing for their lives, their greatest need at that time. And because we find these prayers in the scriptures, they also speak to you and I of our greatest need. Before I come to that, let me just tell you a little bit about this early chapter in Ephesians. Paul is overwhelmingly excited about what God has done in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul begins in verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's overwhelmed. He is so excited. I'm told that the next 10 verses or so, there's no punctuation in the original Greek. He is just overwhelmed and and, and excited about what he is telling these Ephesian believers. And he begins to list these blessings that they have received. And if you're a Christian this morning, you have received. He says... We have been chosen in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. The most important person in all of the universe has chosen you, Paul says. We have been adopted. We are his sons and his daughters. We have been completely forgiven because of what Jesus has done. We have been redeemed, set free from our old way of life. The Holy Spirit has come and he is living within us, guaranteeing what is to come. And on and on he goes, excitedly declaring these blessings that God has given to us in Jesus. But you know, for Paul, these were more than just kind of doctrines or theological concepts. To the Apostle Paul, these were realities that he lived with day by day. That's the reason he could be in the most dire of circumstances and yet be overwhelmed with joy. It's because these truths lived within his heart. They weren't bits of information at the back of his mind. They were a reality. He lived with these truths. I'm grateful this morning for every material blessing that God has given to me. I'm grateful for a home to live in, food to eat, a car to get me around. But you know, I'm I'm aware today that every material blessing that I have today is very temporary and is fleeting. You know, you might live in the nicest house in Leeds. You might drive the most expensive car in the congregation. And I'm pleased for you, I think. I am. If you do, that's wonderful. But you know, the reality is we only have those things for the remainder part of our earthly lives. You may live in a house that is freehold, but in one sense for you, it's leasehold. Because we only have it for our time here on earth. But what Paul is describing are eternal blessings. They are priceless. You could not put a price tag on these blessings. Chosen by God, adopted as his sons and daughters, completely forgiven. We could never buy these things. We could never put a monetary value upon them. It's sad, isn't it, that sometimes, even as Christians, we can be more excited by the temporary than we are by the eternal. But what is it that Paul prays for, for these believers? If we were to try and summarize those two prayers this morning, 
I believe what Paul is praying for is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that these believers would experience truth. Paul is praying for experience. You know, he is teaching some incredible truths, but he doesn't want them storing it away within their back of their minds. He wants those truths to live within their hearts. He is not looking simply to inform their minds. He is looking to impact their hearts. And you know, it's the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit that does that. The Holy Spirit that takes the truth of God's word and makes it live in our experience. It was R.T. Kendall, a great Bible teacher and pastor and author, and he says this. He says, the kingdom cannot be learned like other subjects such as science or geography or history. It is not taught as much as it is caught, and only through the Spirit can it be caught. It cannot be embraced, explained, applied, pursued, or entered without the Spirit of God. Remember the day of Pentecost on, in Acts chapter 2, when the church was launched? The Bible tells us that those early believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to declare the wonders of God in other languages. There was an explosion of praise and an explosion of joy. But you know, some looked on at these believers that seemed to be so bold, so free from self-consciousness, so happy, so joyful, so excited. And they said they've had a little bit too much wine to drink. They're drunk. Peter corrected that in his sermon a little later on. But then... I find in Ephesians a bit later on, Paul says, do not be drunk with wine that leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm told that uh, uh, alcohol is a depressant. And, um, you know, if you drink it to excess, it has a way of deadening the rational mind so that we are less aware of reality. I don't know much about this, but Pastor Andy Lenton explained it all to me. Um, (laughs) But, you know, in contrast to that, so what happens if somebody has too much to drink, um, you know, they, they become less aware of maybe the depressing circumstances in which they're living. So they have a kind of a temporary happiness. They may be quite confident and bold and people say, oh, it's not like them. And they get a terrible hangover in the morning. But, you know, the Holy Spirit, in contrast to that, the Holy Spirit fills us with reality. The Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's word and he makes it real in our experience. So on the day of Pentecost, one of the things that happened was that these early believers who had been steeped in the scriptures from their infancy and had listened to the teaching of Jesus for three years, suddenly when the spirit of God came upon them, these truths became so real. God was so real. Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross became so real to them. Who they were in Jesus became so real to them. And they could not contain themselves. The joy just welled up and they began to worship God. No longer were they self-conscious because there was a crowd of people watching. They were so excited about God. They were declaring the wonders of God in the new languages that God had given to them. Friends, we need the Holy Spirit, don't we? To make the word of God come alive in our experience. I don't have time this morning to go through these prayers line by line, but let me just pull out a couple of lines here. In the first prayer, chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul prays that they might know God better. That they would receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation that they might know God better. Friends, this morning, 
That's a real possibility. You might be here this morning and you know a bit about God. My prayer this morning is that through the work of the Holy Spirit as I teach the word of God, that you might experience God in a way you've never experienced him before. John Calvin, uh, uh, the 16th century reformer and theologian, he argued that you can know a lot about God, but you don't truly know God until the knowledge of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ has changed the fundamental structure of your heart. What he was saying is you can kind of have a lot of information about God. We get excited, don't we, at times when maybe a, a leading atheistic a scientist suddenly says, I believe there's some divine being. So, oh, fantastic. Well, I think that can be the start of an exciting journey, truly coming to know God. But it's not about an intellectual knowledge that there is some supreme being. It's about knowing God personally through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. He goes on to say that the word of God is not received by faith if it flits about at the top of our brain, but when it takes root in the depth of our hearts. Maybe this morning we're able to list off a kind of a, a list of characteristics of God. He is holy, he is love, he is faithful. But you know the challenge is, do we know that personally? When the Bible talks about knowing God, it's not talking about an intellectual knowledge of God, it's talking about an experiential knowledge of God. You know, as Christians, we believe some staggering things, don't we? Or we claim to. Staggering things about God, staggering things about what Jesus has done and who Jesus is, staggering things about what God has done in our lives and what, who we are in Christ. And yet sometimes, I think if we're honest, some of those great truths, those staggering truths, seem to have so little effect upon our lives. Many of those great truths that we claim to believe have the potential to fill us with deep assurance of God's love. The potential to excite and to enrich our lives. The potential to energize us in our worship and in our witness for Jesus Christ. And then a little bit further on, the Apostle Paul prays, verse 18 of chapter 1, that the eyes of the hearts would be enlightened. You know, when it comes to the heart in the Bible, it's not talking simply about the physical pump that pumps blood around our body, but the inner person. It's talking about the center of our personality, including our intellect, but also our will and our emotions. And it's so often in that inner place that the truth of God's word can fail to register. But when the eyes of our hearts are opened and suddenly we see the light goes on in the depths of our hearts concerning God, concerning the truth of God's word, then things change within our lives. It's there that our convictions are forged. And Paul is praying that the light would go on. He has been teaching some great truths. But what he is praying for is that those truths will not just inform their minds so that they will be cleverer, but those truths will impact their hearts. Another great theologian of the uh, 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, he uh, was preaching a sermon probably around this area. And he used a, a wonderful illustration. He said, there are two ways that we can know that honey is sweet. We can know it with our rational mind, or we can know it with our sensing tongue. What he was saying is that somebody can come along to us if we've never, ever experienced honey, and they can try and explain to us that honey is sweet, it's, you know, this is how it's produced, and with the bees and everything, and, uh, you know, or they can say to us, have a taste of this. 
And what he was suggesting is the latter is far better. And it's easy at times to have a knowledge of God, to hear and be taught and say, yeah, I think God is like that. Another thing to taste God, as it were, to experience God personally. The psalmist said in Psalm 34, he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. What is Paul praying for? He's praying for an experience of truth, an experience of God. And then in his second prayer in chapter three, there's a lovely little phrase there. He prays that they will grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That word grasp is interesting. It literally means to get a firm hold of. It can mean to conquer, literally to knock to the ground, to capture. I think in the King James Version, it uses the word apprehend, to apprehend the love of God. What is Paul praying for? It seems a funny word. But Paul is praying that the love of God would knock the people of Ephesus to the ground. He is not looking for a passive acknowledgement where we say, oh, it's nice that God loves me. He is looking for the love of God to transform their lives. He is looking for the love of God to change them in the very heart of their being, to shake them, to stir them, to energize them, to motivate them. You see, for the Apostle Paul, the fact that God loved him wasn't just a nice little thought that he wrote on a calendar. It was a compelling force within his life. It changed his life completely. The love of God was not simply some statement that he read. It was a divine revelation that burned within his heart. And in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul says, the love of Christ compels us. It's a love of Christ that motivates us. Friends, this morning... I wonder if the love of Christ has impacted our hearts in that way. And again, can I say, you may be here and as yet you're not a Christian. It's great to have you with us. I want to tell you this morning, you can experience the love of Christ that will change your life. To know that you are loved unconditionally by the most important person in the universe is a life-changing revelation. To know that the one who knows you most loves you best is a life-changing revelation. And Paul is not praying simply for some passive acknowledgement. He is praying for a divine revelation that will change their hearts and lives. Oh, may God grant this morning as we gather together that for each and every one of us, whether we have walked with Jesus for decades, there will be a fresh revelation of the love of Christ that will knock us over again. Hallelujah. That will capture us, will energize us, will motivate us in our service for Jesus. But I'm reading these things. It sounds exciting. We say, oh, that's wonderful. I'll have some of that. But is that normal Christian living to experience truth in that way? I think for all of us, we would acknowledge, along with those who wrote the scriptures, the human authors, that there are times in our Christian experience where we hold on to the truth of God's word, but feel nothing. The psalmist writes in Psalm 10 and verse 1, he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? I think what the psalmist is saying is, God, I really need you, and you don't seem to be anywhere around. God, I'm going through a tough time, and I can't feel your presence. I'm still believing, I'm still holding on, but I don't sense you. I don't feel you. And the reality is that for all of us, there are periods of time where we hold on to truth. We say, God, this is your word. I believe it. I trust it. And yet right at this moment, I don't feel it. But that doesn't mean that profound experiences of truth 
are not on offer to us as believers. Paul didn't pray a prayer that he didn't expect to be answered. These are extravagant prayers. He expected those prayers to be answered. And when I think of that, I think of verses like Romans 8 and verse 15, where Paul writes that you did not receive, or we did not receive, a spirit again that makes us a slave again to fear, but we received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul is describing a profound experience of the love of God. He's taken that wonderful truth that every Christian has been adopted by God. And we are his sons and we are his daughters with all of the security and with all of the privileges that that brings. Adopted for eternity. Hallelujah. And he says when the Holy Spirit comes, he is the one who makes that truth come alive within our hearts. He testifies, he witnesses with our spirit. And he says there is a cry that rises from us. Abba, Daddy, Father. A simple yet intimate expression of, 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 of Daddy recognizing his fatherhood over our lives. He's talking about an experience. A few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, he says that God has poured out his love into our hearts by his spirit whom he has given us. He's talking about an experience. I love what Peter writes in his first epistle. And he's writing to what we might describe as second generation Christians. And, uh, you know, these are people who had not met Jesus personally like Peter had. And uh, they came to faith through the witness of the apostles and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. And Peter is not suggesting in any way that they are second class Christians. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though now you do not see him, you believe in him and are filled with a glorious and indescribable joy. What an experience. He's saying that actually that truth, you know Jesus, it's not just a fact, it's not just a bit of information. The Holy Spirit works in your heart and there is glorious and there is indescribable joy. How many want a bit more of that? Anybody? Well, I certainly do. You know, that's the experience that is on offer through the word of God. But as I close this morning, the question I suppose we, we need to ask, if this is normal Christian living, for the word of God to come alive and for us to experience God's word, for it to live within our hearts, to be a reality to us, how does that happen? Well, we know that it happens through prayer. Paul prays it and we need to pray these prayers over our own lives. We know that it's only through the Holy Spirit that the word of God comes alive. We could be the cleverest theologian in the world, but without the Holy Spirit, the word of God will not live within our hearts. We can understand all about God, all about theology, but if we are to experience truth, the truth of God's love, the reality of who God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we need the Holy Spirit, as it were, to turn the lights on. So we come humbly to these scriptures. As we open the word of God, we say, Holy Spirit, we need you to come and illuminate the word of God. But I want to suggest that that's not all. There is a part that we play. Can I suggest to you today that we, a casual glance at the word of God now and again is not sufficient. Just hearing the word of God second hand as somebody else expounds it is not enough. 
We need to be engrossed with the word of God. We need to allow times when we open the scriptures and just give time to God's word. The, right in the heart of our Bibles, we have a great songbook of 150 songs, the book of Psalms. And right at the beginning of that songbook, there is a psalm that's a gateway into that songbook. And it talks about the happy and the blessed person. And in verse 2 of Psalm 1, it says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I know Pastor Andy spoke on that last week. I look forward to listening to that on the podcast. And I'm sure he expounded so much of that. But the challenge for you and I today is that we need to provide a platform for the Holy Spirit to work. Our job is to open the scriptures, to read the scriptures, to take time to meditate upon the scriptures. The Holy Spirit's job is to make the word of God live in our experience. It's the Holy Spirit's job to turn the lights on. I wonder today if we were to just in one word describe our relationship with scripture, what would that word be? Maybe for some they say it's comfort. I find great comfort from the word of God. For others, maybe they would say it's authority. I recognize the word of God to have authority over my life. Others, they say the big word for me is obedience. I've got to be obedient to the word of God. All of those are absolutely legitimate and absolutely right. I think if you were to ask the psalmists, give me one word that sums up your relationship with the word of God. I think they would smile and they would say delight, pleasure. It's so delightful to me, I find myself going over the Word of God over and over again. When I can't sleep at night, I spend time just thinking about the Word of God. Because the Word of God has got inside me. Friends, this morning my prayer for all of us is that the Word of God would not simply inform our intellect, important as that is, that we understand the Word of God with our minds. But it would touch our will so that we obey God's Word. But also touch our emotions. You know, sometimes in Christian circles, we're scared of emotion. You know, it's almost like we just don't want an emotional response. No, we certainly don't. But we certainly want our emotions to be touched by the word of God. Paul was very emotional when he wrote Ephesians. You can't help but see that. He's excited. He's overwhelmed with joy. Friends, we need the word of God to fill our hearts with delight and with joy. So it shows upon our faces. As well as moves our will and informs our mind. May God grant that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.